Welcome to the Hyper Voice. I'm your host, Stephen Morioka, and today I'm joined by Alexander Hill. Hello, Stephen. And Colin Heyer. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, guys. This is a show all about Pokemon's Video Game Championship Series, also known as VGC for short. And today we have our third in the world, Colin, here. And, boy, actually, former third in the world, rather. But, yeah, today we're going to be talking about a lot of national, international events that have happened over the past few weeks. We have, we've uh, missed a lot, so we're going to try and do a lot of coverage, hopefully, in this episode. But, let's start off with the, not the most recent event, but the earliest event since we've uh, put a show out. And that is Japan Nationals. This is what we're going to start with. We know everyone wants to hear about Indy and all the good stuff that happened there, but we're just going to quickly go over Japan Nationals, uh, the top teams from there. Um, maybe if we if we have any more information about it, we'll sort through that. But that happened. That was mid-June, that weekend, 17th and 18th. And we saw some interesting teams come out of there, um, I think, and just... If you guys have any more information on how the tournament went, I know there are videos and there was a stream of it that people can catch up on, but uh, just any opinions on the teams on the event itself? Well, from what I remember, I believe the team or the uh, event was run best of one, and I think they did it Swiss this year, if I hear correctly. I think like last year and previous years they've done pools, but in this year I think they did Swiss which uh, is not totally typical for them, but it was still best of one. And so, you know, that's typical fun Japan stuff where, you know, you see crazy teams make it to the top because they have to innovate to be able to make it through these uh, preliminary rounds. And so we saw a lot of teams uh, that stand out, make it into the cut. Uh, And I think once they got into the cut, I think it was still best of one for a portion of it. And I think they only played like a best of three in like the finals or maybe in top four, but I don't know when exactly. It they- was just, yeah, it was just fi- finals was only the only uh, games that were best of three were the finals for all the divisions. So juniors, seniors and masters were all best of one until the final uh, set. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's just so weird for them having to play best of one for pretty much their entire season to qualify and then at nationals until that finals and then all of a sudden Worlds comes around for them at least and it's all best of three. So it must be somewhat radical change for them unless they practice it in their in their groups and stuff in their local tournaments. But um what's interesting to me is I may be wrong about this, but I don't really recognize any of these names as, you know, kind of the big Japanese players. Am I right about that, or am I just... Um, I think you're mostly right, but the the w- guy who won, he had actually placed, I believe, second last year, and maybe even second the year before. So he's been kind of a, a bigger name in Japan, but he hasn't had too much success at, like, a world's level. But outside of that, there weren't many names that I recognized either. Yeah, I just would not be the uh, guy to ask, but um, it like I just think that uh, in general, it's kind of just cool how I feel like they're moving in the right direction, adding Swiss to their tournaments as opposed to pools. And you know, maybe as we that progresses, maybe they'll start moving more and more towards a typical circuit like we see in uh, like Europe or America. And so I'm hoping that things will turn around for them because uh, I personally am not a big fan of the best of one system that they do. But uh, who knows? Maybe that's really what they're into, considering that it is what they play for most of the season, like Steven said. Yeah, I think for the most part, they've just come to accept it as that's what they have to deal with for for now. And, you know, I agree Swiss is probably better than pools for them. You know, other than that, though, some really kind of neat stuff in cut here. You have a rain team, the Pelipper Golduck Double Ducks team with its arena featured on that team. I see tons of Tapu Bulu, Buzzwool, uh, like a choice band Lycanroc, and then there's that Porygon Z team that was also featured at the uh, North America International uh, with a few players there using it. But a lot of cool stuff here. Not to mention that uh, that Lycanroc team was on a dual weather team with Ninetales as well, and I believe the Ninetales had Swagger. Not even with, like, Misty Terrain or anything. Just, like, classic, like, Gen 6 Swagger. Like, let's just run Swagger just to confuse things. 
That is uh, pretty cool, I'd say. Oh, something else that I think is worth mentioning is it's another... They did this last year at Japan uh, Nationals, but something that's worth mentioning because you don't see it as... as uh, Like, it's not the same over here. Uh, the teams were released before cut was played. And so they kind of already, like, knew what everybody was doing going into those top cut matches. And... We kind of have something similar to that uh, here in America where, like, you could go back and watch stream to figure out what people are using on day two. Or in this case, you know, we had uh, top four played on the final day of nationals. And so you could definitely scout out your top four opponent considering all those games were streamed as well as the person you could potentially play in, in finals. Because those, uh, I believe the teams were released at that point. But uh, once again, in Japan, they had the teams fully released, printed out in, like, fancy poster boards posted on the wall so that everyone could see them and that's just so different compared to what we see here yeah what it's also kind of neat to point out is um that a lot of these teams do look best of one which kind of explains why they had a lot of success at this tournament and you know obviously you want to have a good team that would function both in a best of one and a best of three but for for these japanese players specifically you know they needed to really come out, just come out on top with those, with single game wins like that. And a lot of these teams, you know, really have those techniques and kind of, um, unique picks to do that. So, uh, yeah, a lot of standout Pokemon here, a lot of weird things I'd say, and then stuff that, you know, kind of typical. Coco is a, there's a lot of Coco. Um, we talked a lot about the band team. That is the, uh, Tapu mm-hmm. Bulu or Bulu, Arcanine, that, and yeah. Nihiligo. Yeah, you see that placing there in the top eight. And then, uh, some, a lot of just other staples, really. And then those weird picks. I know the, uh, there's information available about all these teams, their movesets and items and natures, I believe. That is available. Uh, I found it on a pastebin. I don't know where else I could find that. But, uh, it's out there if you need if you want to find out what these teams are actually using. Yep, and uh, you know, just one more thing to mention, I guess, before we move on is that, uh, like Steven has said, the ban core or Bulu Arcanine uh, Nine Tail or not Nine Tails uh, Nihilego did see a lot of use there, and I thought that was really interesting because uh, it did follow up Drew's uh, Ace Noak or Drew Noak uh, his win at Madison Regionals with that core, and we just saw a lot more of it there. So. I don't know if that was more of just like a coincidence or kind of thing, but it's kind of interesting to see that meta trend. I, I think that was definitely like up and coming at the time. Yeah. And I think for nationals, people were much more prepared for it because of how much success it was having. So I think it makes sense that I think Japan Nats was like the peak time to like pull it off because I think for our national, it was a little bit on the weaker side than it was there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But overall, the Japanese teams—they're pretty much what we kind of what we kind of expect. Like a lot of best of one. Um, there was a lot of consistency behind them, but I know a lot of people on Twitter wrote them off as very gimmicky or just kind of like, "Oh, Japan's behind," or they're not very good right now. But I think like there's a lot of like careful team building in there, and usually they do have that disadvantage of playing best of one and then they come to the world championships and it's all best of three. So that there's huge disadvantage and I know it's hurt them in the past. Like most notably, I think like 2012, 2013 ish, they struggled to kind of adapt. I remember reading it in, uh, I think it's you, is it Udachi? The, the person who got top eight in 2012, Mm -hmm. he wrote about struggling with best of three because he'd never played it before. He just played best of one. So 2016, didn't they struggle a lot as well? Yeah, they struggled a lot, but I think that, I think, I'm not sure why they necessarily struggled as much there, but like 2013, I know, like he had success, but he did struggle with best of three. Mm -hmm. I think they were just behind in 2016. Yeah, I gotcha, because then you think about the one outlier year that was such a huge outlier, 2015, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that everyone likes to point to, because like Japan just kind of swept us all there, uh... And so that was just really interesting considering that was a best of three tournament. So they've definitely got like, I mean, 2016 doesn't really show that they've gotten better at the best of three yes. stuff, but they've been uh, getting much better, like overall, like playing best of threes. I think they might just practice them more knowing they're going to worlds and there's more of them going to worlds. So they have more people to 
potentially practice best of threes with. Yeah, and something else interesting to point about uh, that could be a possible coincidence with 2015 is they had that uh, weird open invitation to Jap- Japanese players. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're I right. That's that right. I don't know if that's like a related incidents or not like or if it's just totally coincidental but like it's kind of funny that the the year that japan dominated was the year that they were had open participation on day one well yeah when you have a when you have a world structure like that for them that's gonna be a bonus exactly it's totally not what you're used to for them at least yeah but uh really quick here this one thing you mentioned there is that they're not uh really accustomed to playing best of threes you know, it's one thing, and that's very true for in, for for their case. But what uh, what really stands out here is you can only do so much with practice among your own, among uh, friends and just other people in with best of threes. It's so much different in practice than it is in an actual tournament yeah, for setting. Sure. Um, you know, I I don't really know if I have to explain more than that, but uh, it's very different. You know, you're gonna be playing in person, not necessarily online. In person. It's going to be a long day, long tournament. You're going to be playing several matches throughout the day, so very different setting for them. Stakes are high. Yes, and I think the uh, the only thing I just wanted to mention here really quickly is we are looking at the teams from Japan and from the Japan National and the North American International on TrainerTower.com, so you can pull those up if you'd like to follow along with the teams we were talking about. I should have mentioned that earlier, but it was Ryota Otsubo who came out on top with that uh, rain team. And uh, I think that's pretty much all we need to say about Japan Nationals, other than I believe we're going to have around 50 of them who have qualified two worlds because everyone who qualified in Japan Cup or to the National through Japan Cup is also qualified for worlds. So to the best of our knowledge, I believe that is correct. So uh, yeah, so hopefully they'll have a strong showing uh, at worlds um, in terms of attendance. And they couldn't get more invites from their national, considering Japan Cup was the pool for Japan national invites. So it's not like the number of invites that were earned from Japan Cup could have gotten any larger, interestingly enough. It all depends, really, yeah, if they decide to fly over. So um, some of them, I know, like, Vieira, he has an invite, but he didn't perform as well. And then uh, I'm trying to remember if there are any, like, big notable names that people would know of that qualified, but I don't remember if there were some that went didn't go to nationals but qualified. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, it's sometimes it can be tough to follow their entire uh circuit and you know, especially in these last two, three months they have it. But anyway, let's move on from here from Japan and talk about what I'm sure everyone else wants to hear about, and that is Indianapolis. Um big tournament I guess not that big, but, you know, same, roughly same size as the Nationals we've had in the past. And we have, uh, we have Colin on here, who is someone who had not qualified prior to this tournament at the International, needed to do well at this thing to get his invite. You did that, and you had a struggle in the beginning, so just tell us about that. Tell us about your run here. Okay, so I think my run really started in Madison, like, because... I had I just gotten top eight at Seattle, and then I go to Madison, and I was like really struggling there. So I I ended up like I think X and three, so I didn't get the result I wanted to. And then I went to an Illinois um, midseason showdown, where once again I wasn't able to perform. And then I also went to Ohio for that special event, and. I didn't perform there either. I actually went to three PCs and the special event and didn't get any CP. So I, I wanted to set myself up so I'd need top 16, or not top 16, top 64 at Nationals to get my invite. But instead, I needed top 32 now because I hadn't gotten any CP like in a month. Um, so I was really doubting myself, um, like going into Nationals. And then uh, Conan had this team that we had all prepared. So we had our team ready to go. like a week before the event and we were practicing and working with each other and Conan, Michael Anzano and I, we watched some like inspirational movies together on Skype. We were talking to each other like every day, trying to like, we'd play on battle spot and one of us would stream it and we'd watch the other one play to see how they were playing with the team. And then, uh, 
So I wasn't feeling too confident, and Michael actually told me to use my Dallas team because that was the team I had the most success with in the format, but I was pretty committed to Conan's team. And then I went to the event, I was feeling really good, and round one, um, I misplayed a little bit game one. I was like, okay, no big deal. Game two, I fixed myself up, win. Game three, I get like an unlucky flinch in the beginning of the game, but it doesn't really matter too much. Like I played it out, and then... I needed to hit move for two turns with my Garchomp, but he was flinched. So I ended up losing round one. And I was like a little mad because I got a little unlucky, but there were some places where I could have played it better. And then I was like, okay, no big deal. We get two losses. I can easily adjust. And then round two, I played Gary, uh, Kwan. Or um, Chan. Who, yeah, yeah. Chan, Gary Chan, yeah. And he, game one... I won pretty convincingly in game two. I got rock slide flinched from the Flygon this time on my Porygon. And I was like, okay. And then game three, he I couldn't handle his Pheromosa, so I lost that one. And I was sitting at 0-2, and I'd done it before in 2015. I started out 1-2 and, and then won six in a row to make cut. But I didn't have the pressure of making Worlds because I'd, won, I'd earned my invite from the previous year at Worlds. So this year I was a little nervous, and... I uh I called my friend Oliver and he was just telling me about this run uh Mango the Smash player had cuz I like Smash and there's this run where he actually had to play his friend round 1 they messed around with some link dittos in melee and then <laughs> Mango ended up losing and he start and he had to make his run through loser's bracket and he beat everybody in the tournament to like make it so I was like okay I'm going to be Mango today and I'm going to like I'm going to win 7 in a row to make cut um so it started off pretty like starting out at o2 the players are definitely going to be a little um upset and a little off because they are o2 so i was able to like capture my momentum again and i started building it up um and i avoided a lot of the good players because most of them were x and o or x and one at this point for most of the tournament but um i managed to make it to the second last round of swiss so i needed to win two more and I drew Alberto, and it was a little intimidating because I haven't beaten Alberto this year, and he just eliminated me from Seattle a month ago, so I didn't want to like get eliminated from Nats by the same player and the same team. Um, but I was able to plow, uh, power through it and beat Alberto. That game was on stream, and, right? Yeah, the, the third game was on stream because they were streaming... Uh, Michael versus Trista, the rematch from Worlds. Oh, yes, uh, of course. So, game three, I got to be on stream, and then I was able to beat Alberto, um, and then, like, the whole time, like, Michael and Conan were kept me going, and, uh, actually, on the stream, you can see me, I, like, look into the audience, because I see Michael and Conan are there, and I, like, mouth the words, like, did you win? And once they tell me I won, I, like, give them a, give them a little pop-off on stream, because I'm just so happy that both of them won. Um, and then we met, like, in, I mentioned it in the, uh, the interview as well afterward. Um, because, like, the whole day we were just cheering, like, keeping each other going. Uh, just like the three of us, like, cause we're like a little bit of a team. So we weren't playing, like, it felt like we were actually playing a team game, even though it was a, um, a single person game. But the whole day we were just cheering each other on. And then the final round, um, I played Jonathan Evans. Um, I got lucky game one with a freeze, and after that, he didn't adjust as well as I did for game two, and then I was able to 2-0 him. And then I saw myself sitting at 7-2, and as long as I didn't mess up day two too poorly, I would have an invite to Worlds again, which is what I was aiming for. But more importantly, Conan and Michael were able to make it to day two as well, and we dodged each other the whole time. Um, <laughs> so we got pretty lucky in that regard. And then we got to watch Conan win, too. And, like, on stream, he got all excited when he saw that both of us had made it to day two as well. I remember seeing that, like, on the... Even though I was at the event in person, I remember seeing it on the stream. You could see Conan, like, being really excited before he even, like, finished his set. And, like, I imagine it for the people who didn't understand what was going on, they were really confused. But, like, I see him looking at you guys, and I'm like, I know exactly what's going on. But, yeah, it's really funny that you, all three of you, were able to make it to the day two with the same team like honestly i'm here looking at the results and just in the like span of my web page you can see like all three of them with the same team like 
uh, Michael at 16th, Conan at 18th, and Colin at 20th. So, and they're all just using that one team. Obviously, it made a big impact. It was uh, a really strong call because it made all three of you uh, make it to the day two. For sure. It was something, like, because for the entire season, we've only changed about two Pokemon per tournament. Um, obviously, this is a lot different than the Tapu Fini um, Vikavol team that we started with, but it's still, like, it kind of moved back towards it in a way, but we've only, between each tournament, we've only changed two Pokemon, so it's something Conan and I were comfortable with, because we've been competing all year, but Michael has been practicing on the side, and he had been using variants of our teams as well. Nice. Yeah, I, we, uh, Michael doesn't, I understand Michael doesn't attend as many events as I'm sure everyone else would like him to, but still showing very good player with this strong performance here. And I just want to point out, or not, uh, yeah, I just wanted to point out that you guys, uh, you know, strong group of friends there with the, with the same team. And did it help you, um, you know, going on that, big win streak did it help you as you kept winning and your friends kept winning did that help build your confidence throughout the day um definitely for sure because like after every round they would be the first people i'd go to like because i wanted to know if they won because i wanted them to cut i wanted michael to win the tournament so he would get worlds i wanted conan to get day two and i wanted to make worlds so i was cheering for all of us almost equally like if not maybe even more than myself like it's kind of weird playing like a game like this where you have to be so focused to yourself and I definitely have been in past years, but this was the first tournament that I actually felt like I was playing not just for me. Like, I was playing for the three of us to do well. Like, because we're a team, we consider ourselves Team Japan. So, we were definitely like cheering each other on. And it's a weird, it's a weird feeling to like play as a team like that. Yeah. Uh, I can, I can definitely understand it. Um, there are certainly other groups out there, uh, that I'm sure have similar feelings towards one another in their, Groups of friends there, but uh, kind of the story of the tournament here is really, first off, we did not, North America did not defend its international, so... Uh, In the worst way, like the worst, we got swept. That's true, like yeah, we didn't even point this out in the beginning, is that every division uh, was won by Oceania, Oceania and yeah, and that, that was uh, Australia to be even more specific, and yeah, it, that was rough. Like, at least Ashton won Brazil so that America had a international one, but, like, to not win our own just feels, it feels insulting, and it's kind of silly to, to, like, take it so personally, but, like, I was really rooting for Paul in the end because I was like, we can't get swept, especially after watching Oceana win two finals in a row. I was like, this can't actually happen, like, and that was actually the story of the weekend is that Australia won all three divisions. Yeah, and it wasn't even um, it wasn't even Australia just winning against other players. They all beat U.S. players as well. So we had our <laughs> chances in each division. And uh, what I also want to point out here is kind of just uh, this weird trend at the specifically our international or our nas- former national and this current international. And I looked through all the previous top cuts since we've had a day one, day two Swiss system. And of the possible, let's see, 16, sorry guys, uh, 30, yeah, 38. Out of the 38 possible top cut spots over the last four years at, uh, at this level of tournament for the U.S. at least, or the, in North America, there have been 38 different people. There's not a single person who has, uh, you know, put up consistent performances at, you know, top cutting these, actually top cutting these events into the bracket stage. But uh, what's neat to point out about that is the these events always have that wild card player coming in and doing really well. You know, I think the best example from this tournament was Sean Bannon, who of course, yeah. I don't think not many players knew about him. Has this stellar performance, uh, finishing in the top four, and I think now he might beat Alex your own record of uh, topping a, getting a really good spot at nationals and no worlds. He did get top four no worlds. Absolutely ridiculous. And I think that just kind of like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people had a lot of uh, gripes towards this because uh, you shouldn't be able to get so far at a, the national level tournament internationals, which we held four of them across the whole year all over the world and not be able to go to Worlds, not be able to get an invite because I, I definitely think he was a player that deserved it just for this performance alone. But 
I don't know. It's it's really tough. Like I I feel like a lot of people that I saw with their uh, reactions, they felt like top eight was like the debatable spot. Like you know, should we give auto invites to top eight? But top four is one that I don't see a whole lot of debate on. I feel like the majority of people think that top four should be able to go to worlds, and uh, it's really rough to see uh, that happen to Sean. I mean, obviously, if he had a more successful season, he could, it could have been different, but. Uh, just the CP scaling isn't the greatest uh, at the international level, in my opinion. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think like top eight people can argue, but top four, there's no question. Like that should be an invite. Like even if you have no CP, I think top four, it's hard to not say they deserve an invite. It shouldn't come down to just a win. Even for him, he might not have made worlds even with second. So yeah, exactly. It's kind of. It's it's really crazy because I know Michael needed first and he like he got top sixteen, but he needed like first in the entire tournament. He couldn't even get second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that's uh, having to win a tournament to get worlds. That's just a tall order um, for any person at all. You, you could be the best player in the world. That's gonna be a tall order. Yeah, exactly. And like you had said, Stephen, uh, the consistency at nationals. Uh, I'm not sure how many years you pulled from from 2015 or 14. Uh, I've from I've from 2014 onward. Okay. Um, the last the last time we had a repeat performance from a top cut player was from Gavin winning in 2013 and then Gavin in top eight in 2014. So. Okay, but since 2014, there's been no repeats. Right. The point I'm trying to make here is this is one of the craziest events we've had uh, through the entirety of VGC, and how. You know the crazy, the cra- honestly, the craziest things happened at these tournaments. You get all kinds of wild card players placing really well, and then you have uh, so many great stories kind of coming out of all these tournaments every time. So, um, you know, unfortunate for Sean in his specific case for this year, uh, really strong performance. You know, he walks away with does did top four walk away with trophies from this tournament? Yeah, he did. Yeah, so he's he got a semifinalist trophy for for that and no worlds, which is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And seven hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> also, uh, something that we haven't mentioned yet, and uh, it might look a little bit uh, interesting when you're looking at the trainer tower results, is you'll see uh, like the ninth and tenth place. They had an eleven and three record, but didn't earn any money, and so they essentially took the bottom four players of this top ten cut that they ended up making and made them play for the seventh and eighth seed, so that they could fight their way into a top eight bracket and. Uh, I think that was kind of similar to how it was done last year. Yeah, it was It was the exact same. Okay. Like, not the same number, but, like, they had all... Anyone who went X and 2 on day 2... Um, or, no. yeah, it was X and 3. X and 3 across the whole day. tournament. Yeah, X and 3 for this time. But last year, their records didn't carry over. So yes. X and 2, you made cut, and some people had to play in. So, it's really tough for me to speak on this, since I... Would have, I would really want to experience it to uh, be able to speak on it. But, Colin, what is your opinion on records carrying over since it was something you got to participate in, making it into the second day of Nationals? Um. Well, personally, I'm hev- not, I wouldn't say heavily against it. I'm not going to like argue with people, but I disagree with it just because, for me, if we were playing Smash or <sighs> another fighting game, it would make sense because it's all skill. Like, but Pokemon has some luck, and I think having the X and 2 system that accounts for that is really nice because it's like, okay, I get two losses to luck, and then if I win seven games, I still get to make it. So, like, that's how I kind of view it. Yeah. The record, the records can't, like, I do like the idea of rewarding the person who goes 9-0 and instead of, I believe, like, last year, uh, I think Andy Himes went 9-0, and and he didn't get rewarded for it, but that's because once people were... 7-0, they just stopped playing, or they just showed up and said, hey, do you want the win? I don't care. Exactly, yes, and it, it happens. It makes the last two rounds mean something to those players, but for me, it really hurt me into going into day two, because I started out 7-2, much like all the other Americans, mm-hmm. um, and I had to play, I had to win all but one round, and that's pretty tall order to ask against all these people who are in day two. Mm-hmm. So I lost to Nails and Michael Lanzano. So I finally pulled one of them, and Michael beat me, and I lost to Nails. So my losses really didn't feel like 
they, they were deserved, and I felt like they were two good players to lose to, but it, it knocked me out of the tournament entirely. So even before this, I didn't necessarily like the records carrying over just because of how luck-based Pokemon is. Mm-hmm. But I understand the like the like for it because you do get rewarded for doing stellar on day one, which is not something to like um, push off or anything. Like it's hard to go nine out. Exactly. It's it's tough because you do want to reward those players. You don't want to make those last rounds meaningless, as you said. You know, you want people to put their all into every round of the tournament and make it worth something. Because otherwise, going seven and zero, you can just basically stop from there and lose the next two rounds because it doesn't matter. But you know, making every round count is an interesting concept because uh, it's not something that we've done in the past for at least the national level. And I want it. You want to reward those people, but then again, it's just it does hurt when you go into the second day and you're X and two and you really don't have as much room for error because, but you know, you couldn't have really done an X and four cut because if we had made it, uh, you know, X and two in the second day, we would have 21 people based on what happened here at nationals. And that's just way too many people to end up cutting. So it's tough to find the, you know, perfect solution um, in a tournament like, uh, like in a situation like this, because, you know, with Swiss, with uh, two days of Swiss, it's just, it's hard to find what is the best, best system that, you know, benefits everyone. I think the difference here really is that there was championship points on the line compared to Worlds where uh, the last two years we've seen, once you get that X and 2, once you reach that point where you're guaranteed to make day 2, they withdraw you from the tournament. Here, since there's points on the line, like they needed to keep the records going for, you know, whatever reason they decided way back uh, in the beginning of the season... But I want to speak to the point of really rewarding players for, you know, doing well the first day. Because think about it, when you're a 7-2 player, right? You're happy you made cut, but then to advance farther, you have to go at minimum 4-1 uh, to, yeah, to advance at that stage. And, you know, that's that's kind of, a, that's reasonable to expect on day two. You know, you want your players to be doing extremely well. But look at it on the flip side. The one player who is 9-0 can't afford to go two and three, have a losing record on the second day, and still make it into cut. So yes, it rewards them, but it's kind of it's kind of weird what they're looking for on that second day from that player. You know their expectations. That's a good point. Like you actually saw that example. Not to pick on Nils, uh, I believe is that how you say his name, Nils Dunlop. Mm-hmm. Not to pick on him, but uh, you know it's he did go two and three on the second day and still managed to make cut just because he had that nine and zero start. And while, you know, a 9-0 is nothing to laugh at, you know, that's a strong day one, it's hard to, you know, justify going 2-3 and three in the second day and making cut versus those people who might have gone 3-2 and two and just not made it. Um, I don't know, that's only one win versus one more loss, but it's just, it's, it's weird to think about, you know, that people like in Colin's situation, they have to push hard for that 4-1 and one to make it in versus Nils can make it in with just a 2-3. and three. I believe that happened at Australia too with the champion actually. I believe she went two and three in day two and then made cut and then won the tournament. Did she, did she go nine and zero on the first day or eight and zero and something or? I think she did because I remember someone telling me that she did go two and three. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so it's like it rewards them for going. I might be wrong about that. I'm not sure. Gotcha. Yeah, it rewards it, but like then uh, Nils didn't have like the best day two. I mean. Top eight is nothing to laugh at, but he didn't have like the performance he necessarily would have wanted to. And there's also like a difference between when you play someone at eight and zero, you're both eight and zero, and you just had an entire day of playing. There's a different like mentality and mindset of when you start fresh the next day. Because if I play someone after eight rounds of Swiss and I'm eight and zero, I'm gonna play a little bit differently than I do when I start after a nice you know night's rest, and then you play me at the next day, like. There's a huge like mentality, like how you're feeling and how you how how you are actually playing. And you look at the players who you are playing against. You know, he had a very positive record on the first day versus the entire tournament. But when you look at his record versus the people who were strong enough to make it to the second day, he went negative. And so that's kind of like, well, you proved yourself against players of any caliber, but you didn't prove yourself against the players of the highest caliber. I definitely I see where you're coming from. I definitely agree with it. That's that's my like one of my issues with that record's carrying over to because I uh I played in 2015 that that was the only other time I cut and the records didn't carry over 
and I went X and two on day two. Um, and it definitely were like the players who were, I don't even know the records of the ones. Like I know Blake barely made it in a day, uh, day one at X and two, mm-hmm. like on the last round. And then he ended up getting top four at the tournament, but he went X and two as well on day two. So if this system was enacted, he wouldn't have cut. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's weird. I know some people are really for it, but I see both sides, but I personally don't really like it. Yeah, it's tough. And also, I just want to like clarify to everyone listening that I'm in no way picking on Nils. It's just, you know, I'm mostly looking at him as like numbers, you know, like what the like record was and like what like he ended up receiving for his record. I don't, I don't in any way mean to like pick on him for his performance. I just uh as a person just more looking at it as yeah like i said the record the numbers wins and losses so yep well said um so night neat uh, i guess a neat talk about the uh the international structure which we'll come back to again at some point in the futures because we need to review the season as a whole at some point and then you know we'll cover this subject again but uh if you guys want to move on from the you structure know, Steven, a little bit what yeah i was, I was gonna say before we, yeah we I haven't even talked about who won. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if we want to move on from the structure a little bit, we can talk a little bit more about uh, where the players actually placed and some of the Pokemon they used. So I felt like the, you know, just from the view- spectator's perspective, I thought some of the, the two biggest Pokemon stories I saw were uh, Snorlax and Metagross. So Snorlax, you know, very happy to see it doing well at all these tournaments because I'm sure everyone knows it's my favorite Pokemon. Um, had a really strong showing using Curse. I don't know if, uh, I know some of these people had Belly Drum as well, so not to, uh, scoff at that at all. And then Metagross, there was a lot of the weakness policy set, which I felt like it does, it really does a lot all in one turn when the, uh, partner's using Bulldoze. Because first off, Metagross has clear body, right? So you're not lowering your own speed. It gives you chip damage on the opponent's team. It gives you speed control. And it's also going to activate your own weakness policy so you can power up, get the, to plus two attack. So doing three things all in one fell swoop is really powerful. And, you know, Metagross really felt like this, um, it felt like in, it felt like this weird spot compared to Kartana and Celesteela in terms of steel types throughout the entire season. And we saw it do pretty well in this tournament. Yeah. And uh, I would say that it's, Interesting to see how, yeah, like we you had said, we saw so many Metagross make it into the cut. And I don't even know if all of them were running specifically that weakness policy set, because I believe, like, the highest Metagross that we saw was, like, Sean's, which I believe was Choice Banded. And then I can't remember exactly what uh, Nails runs on his Metagross, but I don't know if it's exactly the same kind of uh, Bulldoze. His was, uh, yeah, his was Bulldoze weakness policy, but with Buzzwool and Arcanine instead of, like, Salamence. Okay, so it is the same one. So we did end up seeing it in the top eight. And then uh, in terms of other things that are worth mentioning on the teams, um, Ducks still made the cut, which is kind of funny. Unfortunately, Tommy not representing it, uh, going for that four for four. But we did end up seeing Ducks still make it into the top cut of internationals through Sean. And then uh, Marcus actually using one of the teams that we saw in the top cut of Japan Nationals uh, that we were talking about earlier. Uh, he used a team that was basically like a variation of it, but mostly a direct copy of it uh, to great success at Nationals. Yeah, Marcus's team. Um, when Michael Conan and I saw the set on the Smeargle and the Porygon Z, because it is Fake Out, uh, Fake Out Spore. Map Block Transform. Map Block Transform. The Map Block is the important part because. I think it's definitely like a really good um, early round kind of like if you aren't prepared for this, you're going to get swept by it. Mm-hmm. And so I know like I even talked to Chupa who was at 01 next to me. He didn't end up making cut, but we were both at 01 and he was actually talking about how he lost to Porygon Z Smeargle. And I mentioned, I was like, oh, it must have been the map block stuff. And he's like, wait, is that a thing? So even like Chupa who's like in top four of championship points didn't didn't necessarily watch Japan Nats or look at the teams too closely to see the map block Smeargle. Nobody really saw it coming. Yeah, so it like caught a ton of people off guard, like especially like for the game one scenario. But then Marcus was able to pilot it obviously through all three uh, games potentially. He did get uh, top eight, 
but it definitely like in a game one like if you're not if you don't come prepared for that you're gonna lose and even if you know it's coming you can still lose i know conan had to play marcus in day two and we knew that team like because we we were kind of afraid of it because we saw the like it's really hard to actually beat the porygon miracle lead uh if you're not prepared or like even if you are prepared so conan actually lost to it as well just because marcus was such a good pilot of the team but I think that team is very like interesting because I know um, uh, Tobias used it as well, mm-hmm. but he wasn't able to cut. I just think it's a really interesting team, and I, I'm not sure like if we'll see it, if we'll see stuff like that appear at Worlds. But I know like a lot of it was like caught a lot of people off guard, and even if you are prepared for it, it was a really solid team. I definitely recommend to anyone who hasn't uh, seen it because it was on one of the side TV. So I imagine the great majority of people that are listening to this didn't see it. But uh, that set versus Conan or Conan versus Marcus, I think, is on YouTube now. Definitely a worthwhile one yeah, to watch because I did get a, I did get to watch that live and it was very exciting. Um, but you know, the Smeargle Porygon Z lead often like it just it seems to remind me of like Smeargle plus Xerneas from last year except this time map block works a lot better because you don't see things like fake out like roar or whirlwind or taunt or things that get past map block that would annoy uh maybe like a crafty shield Smeargle to help a Xerneas set up or something like that whereas Porygon Z gets this boost a lot easier because we see a lot more offensive moves where like people see follow me plus a setup move and think, Oh, I can just use sky drop with my Coco and then maybe a Z move or something like that. And those are both blocked by a mat block, especially coming from a scarf smeargle. And so it ended up being one of the probably most crucial moves on that set. Uh, just the ability to wall off any damaging attacks. Uh, and I feel like that's most people's go-to uh, strategy for setup strategies like Eevee or Porygon Z this year is to just blow through it uh, as early as possible instead of, you know, maybe running things like Taunt or Haze or Whirlwind. And so it's uh, interesting to see Matlock have so much success. And it was just, I think it was just a really crucial part of the team in this meta. And then something else uh, that we have yet to talk about, um, and it was really the team of the tournament, in my opinion. Like, you know, we did see a lot of Snorlax recycling and recycling and recycling. You know, good for Snorlax, save the planet. But uh, Paul Chua ended up finishing second with a team that we saw a lot of players using. Um, I believe a lot of people are calling it Snack Chomp. That's my favorite name for it, at least. <laughs> um, because it's, it's another acronym, but, you know, at least, yep. at least it's like a... <laughs> more common word i don't know it's just as ridiculous as chalk and fake pg or whatever but i like snack jump because it's just the best way i think to refer to it and um we saw a lot of people using teams very similar to that either snack chomp or smack chomp with Mimikyu over nine tails and uh we saw a lot of strong players using the one that paul chua was using that is tapu coco celesteela arcanine garchomp nine tails and snorlax like we saw wolf play with it on stream we saw um I believe he was playing against Leonard Kraft in a mirror match on stream using the team. And uh, I think a lot of people were expecting to see this team going into the tournament because there were so many people uh, running around with it. Uh, Billa was using it at the tournament. Uh, Pokey Alex had cut a regional with it a week before. It had won a regional on its own, and Toller uh, a while back had ended up making cut with it. So it's a team that has like a lot of history to it, but I don't know, just... Around this time, people decided this was uh, the event to bring it to, and uh, it sh- it didn't make a t- like it didn't have a huge representation on the uh, day two cut, but we saw a lot of it on the stream matches. Oh, for sure, I definitely uh, I use this team a little bit as well, but with the Mimikyu, and it's definitely a really strong team, and it kind of feels a little chalkish in a way, like where if you outplay your opponent, you can win almost every game. But I think the, like, I know Wolf also used it in the Smogon tournament um, in top four or in top eight or something. And this team has been kind of, it's been around since Virginia where Toller and uh, Kazuki, uh, Toller's friend, both used the same team, uh, except Kazuki had Mimikyu. So it's been around for a while. I think they were some of the first to find success with it. I'm not sure. But it's just a really, like, kind of safe option, like, to pick. And I think, like, one of the most important things to note is that the Garchomp's almost always scarfed. 
Um, cause it's just all built around, I think, the Celesteela. Like, you want the Celesteela to checkmate and win the game for you. That's how most people play the team. So the Garchomp being Scarfed helps get rid of threats like Coco, Arcanine, stuff like that, as opposed to, like, the Ground Z set. So it's a really interesting team, and you'll never play, like, two that are the same because they'll just put techs in different places. Paul had Wide Guard Celesteela. Wolf had Blizzard List Ninetales. Uh, Billa had Air Slash Celesteela. So it's just, there's so much you can do with these six Pokemon. Like, you can move all the sets. You can move the Z-moves all over the place. You could run... Ground Z Garchomp and like Specs Coco, like Toler Ran, or you could run Fire Z Arcanine if you wanted to. There's just so much you can do with the team, and I think that's what makes it so versatile and why we see it a lot. I definitely think that, uh, and while people use this way too often, I think this is a very fair team to compare to Shock from 2015, where you know you take some of the most solid Pokemon, and then you see the last slot gets swapped around a lot, where it was like Thunderous from uh, that year, and now you see Ninetales or Mimikyu or Slowking. You know, we saw Justin Karras run Slowking on this team uh, to make it to the second day, and so it's really interesting. Like you said, people just kind of swap around all these moves to make it their own flavor, to make it unique and, you know, maybe catch their opponents off guard because they seen the team. They think they know how to play it, but really they don't when they see that, uh, you know, there are certain techs that make the matchups play differently. And so um, it's a, I think it's a cool concept. I, uh, I personally didn't like hate chalk back in the day in 2015. I respected it. You know, it was a team that you just had to beat. And so this is just kind of another one of those teams where, it's obviously very safe. It uses some of the best Pokemon, and why wouldn't you, you know, if you're playing to win? And so it's uh, just, I guess that was just kind of what we had come to at this point in the format is just we found uh, a core that's been popular all season long, Coco, Celesteela, Arcanine, Garchomp, and then added one of the hardest to get rid of Pokemon, Snorlax. Uh, it, I mean, it's a, it is like a roadblock in itself, you know, <laughs> if you played the games. And so, uh, yeah, it's just kind of funny uh, that... Uh, this was the tournament that it really came out at, but um, I guess we did see, like you had said, uh, success or like it popping out uh, up all over the season. So I just really like how you know these this specific team, you know, whether it's Coco Celesteela, Arcanine Garchomp, Snorlax Plus, or whatever. I really like how it always strikes uh, some some sort of fundamental VGC concept, which is hitting your floors and ceilings in terms of your speeds. So you have your really fast Pokemon in Coco, uh, Ninetales, and Garchomp. If it's Scarfed, it's going to be even faster than it already is. And the other three kind of play more into the slower mode. Snorlax is obviously going to be your slowest one. Celesteela is in that mid-speed tier where you can also consider it slow enough to be, you know, it's defensive enough to stall out uh, Trick Room. So it lets you play around uh, against some of those other teams. And then Arcanine is just Arcanine, which is really good in this format. And he can play both in and out of Trick Room, especially with uh, Extreme Speed and just fantastic Pokemon. But uh, I like how it strikes the some fundamental VGC team building. And it's also just really using strong uh, Pokemon in this format. So uh, not surprised to be seeing it have success uh, recently. That's a funny concept that you bring up there because I remember talking to my friend about it over the course of the weekend. He was using a very hard Trick Room team. Uh, that I ended up building the uh, Lucario one. And so uh, he referred to it as a speed sandwich when you're facing against like a Coco and a Snorlax. <laughs> and it's like, well, I can't set up Trick Room because there's a Snorlax across from me. But then Coco just gets to do whatever it wants because it's the fastest Pokemon in the field. And so you're really just kind of sandwiched in between these two Pokemon. And so that's why Coco and Snorlax in their own way like synergize well together because they have such varying speeds and you can control the board from both sides of the spectrum. I think that's especially important this year because speed control is really lacking for most teams. And this team has most, most of the time has, if you're using the Ninetales version, you're relying on kind of icy wind as speed control from a Ninetales. So it's not always the most reliable, uh, especially it's not like a trick room or something, but the speeds are so varied on the team that you can always like kind of position yourself in a way where your Pokemon are faster, regardless if trick rooms up, if, you potentially get Icy Wind, you can still manipulate the game in your way, uh, in your favor. That's why I personally didn't like it, because the speed control is lacking. Um, obviously, if you have Mimikyu and stuff, that changes a little bit, because now you have the Mimikyu Snorlax version, so you have like this like really scary Trick Room option. But like the one Paul used had just Icy Wind, so you definitely have to play really smart uh, around your speed tiers. 
but obviously you can pull it off as Paul shown. And it does have that inadvertent speed control with Garchomp, you know, holding the choice scarf, as well as rock sliding, because that's its own form of speed control, right? <laughs> yeah. If your opponents can't attack, that's speed control, right? <laughs> call it that, sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there are obviously a lot of great matches in the top cut here, but um, let's talk about finals here. Obviously, I'm sure it was an exciting match to um, to anticipate before it had happened. Uh, Australia versus U.S., the third straight time in that tournament for VGC. Um, you know, you would hope the U.S. would pull out a win there, but uh, let's talk about finals a little bit. I remember seeing game three. Paul was up four to two, and I was wondering to myself, how the heck is he going to lose this? And just... Uh, crazy match for Christopher Khan. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, yeah, Khan. Christopher Khan, huge, uh, just really uh, incredible performance to pull that back and pull off that victory. It was really cool that his uh, brother was also able to win in, I think, the juniors division. Um, so just a crazy weekend for that family to be able to win nationals uh, together. Uh, which is a really cool storyline on its own, aside from the fact that America got swept by Australia. But uh, the finals match uh, was uh, really nail-biting and crazy. Um, it was very back and forth where we saw, I think, Paul won the first game. and uh, Other know. way, other way. It was the other way? Okay, so Paul yeah, lost. Yeah, because uh, I think that was the one he crit his, uh, his himself. Oh, his no, yes, yeah. <laughs> And then he ended up bringing back the second th- game, and so I was like, it's so perfect that we're going for Game 3 at uh, the National Finals. And uh, yeah, I think the I b- think the big kind of story of that Game 3 was uh, Snorlax just n- prevailing and recycling no matter what uh, was thrown at it. It ended up getting paralyzed by Tapu Koko, as well as uh, Garchomp just launching rock slides endlessly, and it... Uh, did not flinch in the face of danger and just kept recycling. So it was really crazy to watch. And, uh, you know, you felt like the odds were against Chris. I actually don't know the math on it, but, you know, just getting the recycle off so many times in a row was so crazy to watch it. And it's one of those things where I felt like a lot of people in the crowd were not on Team Paul, not on Team Chris, but on Team Chaos. They just wanted to see (laughs) hacks happen because it's exciting because you're like, oh, my gosh, like, this guy just got flinched four times in a row or something like that. You know, it's just rooting for the RNG and just to see the craziest things happen. And so um, I think that was just, it was a hilarious match to watch. There was also, I think, a freeze that ended up helped Paul winning game two, I think. And so uh, mm-hmm. just overall a really ridiculous set that I really loved enjoy and enjoyed watching live. I personally think like game three, um, I believe Christopher either lost a Pokemon really early or Paul got lucky against something. But I know Christopher was forced to toxic Paul's facade Snorlax, and that's kind of how he lost game two as well, because like, Snorlax was just doing too much damage with the base 140 normal move. And in game three, he was forced to do it again, and he just positioned himself well enough that the facade Snorlax wasn't able to actually like win the game for Paul straight up, like it did kind of like with the help of a freeze in game two. Because I was like, why did he do that? He's just going to power up the Snorlax, but he kind of had to so he could um, actually deal with it. So that was like the thing that I remember the most. And of course, the flint, the rock slide avoiding flinches. Right. I mean, other, other, I think the only other thing, really, thing I can say about the finals is it was very exciting one to watch, definitely. Um, you know, luck is just part of the game. So both players had to make the best of whatever situations they were in. And play play those out as best as they could. And, you know, it was just really great to see these players go to a Game 3. Uh, really strong performances from both of them. And I hadn't even realized that uh, Christopher Khan was a world champ, previous world champion from the senior division in the trading card game, <laughs> of all things. Which is, uh, that's crazy to think about that. This is one really skilled player in both of Pokemon's... Uh, Games here. I guess they also have Pokemon Tournament now, so... Is he Australian Sajin? Well, he'd have he'd have to win Worlds, too, I yeah. guess. Well, you said, I mean, he won Worlds in TCG. In the Sajin's right. division. Backwards. He's backwards, Sajin. Exactly. Now he has to... It's because he's from Down Under. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. 
But uh, yeah, uh, Australia takes the sweep for for this international in all three divisions. And I think I also saw that out of all the internationals, you know, across all divisions. So I think they won six out of the 12 total titles. So that's also something kind of nuts to think about. Uh, makes them look really good heading into Worlds. You know, just in general, like they've been performing really well, winning events. Uh, we'll see if they can take it all later in August. Uh, one thing that I do want to mention briefly uh, that was kind of funny uh, is the, I believe there was a big tournament in Japan. I think it was Battle Road Gloria. And they had the basically the same finalist teams that we ended up seeing in the senior division finals at North American Internationals. Uh, like there was like one mon difference where a guard jump was swapped for a Faramosa, which ended up being a pretty crucial part of the team. But we saw Scarf Silvali taking on, uh, I think it was fake PG with Togedomaru. Uh, mm-hmm. And yep. it was like literally the same matchup, which was just a, such a funny and weird coincidence, but uh, really cool. And I think one of my favorite moments from the stream was when the uh, senior international champion got on stream and for his interview. And he was like, uh, like what went well in that battle, and he said Togedomaru was on point. And you know, I was a big fan because I'm a big Togedomaru <laughs> fan, and you know, just throwing out those like, you know, little, little memes. You know, I, it made me smile seeing that uh, Togedomaru ended up winning the national, even if it was only in the seniors division. That matchup actually played in the complete opposite way. Um, in Battle of Gloria, the Silvalli guy actually like stomped. Uh, DJ, who was the Togedomaru guy, like, yeah, it wasn't even close, so props to him for changing, <laughs> uh, changing a little bit of the matchup. And I don't think Faramosa, like, the Faramosa Garchomp changed, like, I don't think he brought Garchomp against, um, DJ, so, but, uh, he did opt to bring Faramosa, which was a, uh, a good choice, because she did, like, destroy that team if she. Faramosa was um, very influential. Yeah, it was it was a interesting set, but the Australian senior played really well. So did the Australian junior. Um, he impressed me a lot. Oh, uh, that was just unfair, honestly. Like he was <laughs> he was playing like a master. Like I think we all felt that way. We were just like, okay, we can't even make these plays. Why? What is this kid doing down there? Yeah, he was he was definitely he showed up, and so did the uh, senior as well. He made the plays he needed to. He was well-trained, obviously, by the international champion uh, for North America, so definitely had, you know, uh, I'm sure some great uh, brother uh, training there. I think that's really cool. Uh, just really cool concept that they not only were two Australian or three Australians able to win, but two of them being related. And, you know, just the number of Australians in the tournament being so low and then they all end up winning is just a crazy storyline. So I think on a note of that storyline, we're going to have to end our story here today and um, finish up this episode. So we hope you've enjoyed the coverage of these tournaments. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Indy for uh, the next few times we do the show. And obviously, leading up into Worlds, there's a lot to talk about there. We have information on the world structure on the Anaheim Open, which we we did not get to talk about here, but we'll get to that in the future. But that'll do it for this show. Thank you so much to Colin Heyer for being on with us today. No problem. Glad to be here. And obviously, uh, congratulations to you on obtaining your invite at this final event. And we'll be seeing both you and Alex at Worlds. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. I definitely am really excited to go to Anaheim. And yeah, you'll see me there. I'll put my all into it. Nice. So other than that, you can find the show on iTunes. Leave us a review there. You can also send us an email to vgchypervoice at gmail.com. Send us some feedback. Send us your questions. We'd love to talk about what you'd like to hear about on the show. And the other thing is we're all we're also all on Twitter. Colin, where can people follow you? Oh, uh, I believe I'm the bat. Yeah, I'm uh, at the at battle room. Just battle room? No, the. No, the I removed the the. Okay, so at battle room. At battle room, yeah. Got it. And Alex, where can people follow you? I am at Lexicon VGC. Stephen, if people did want to follow you, they would find you at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am at Super Morioka. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you've enjoyed it. 
and stay tuned for more.